Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here for this Christmas season, as well as though joining us in the auditoriums and online as we continue the wonder of Christmas. We've got a little snow globe theme going on this year. And one of the aspects of snow globes is they're beautiful, they're wonderful, and they're picturesque. And isn't that how we want all of our Christmases to be? How many of you, I remember praying this, especially when the kids are little, just help us not to be throwing up on Christmas Day. You know, that, that was like one of my, my prayer requests. But as, as you go along, you have different versions of what you want your Christmas to look like. We all want that snow globe Christmas. Even if it's like, everybody just be quiet and stand in line and smile. We want that moment. Oh, if I could just have that hour. But we've, we've been learning something through this series that... There really are no snow globe Christmases because things happen. People happen. We lose people. There's different dynamics. Things change. People are added to families. Things all of a sudden are different. And sometimes they're not necessarily how we maybe wanted them to be. And navigating that is what we're called to do as children of God not fight to have a perfect fake Christmas, but to have a real Christmas and to do it and to honor it the way Jesus would have us. Now, in our snow globe this morning, we got some people in there where there's people. There's often, sometimes, I know we're only gonna talk about other families, not your family. Sometimes in other people's families, there's conflict at Christmas. Well, believe it or not, I know, I know. Um, uh, and sometimes, Conflict can turn into feuds. How many remember this show? How many remember this show? Does that speak to anybody? Family feud. I mean, I can still sit down and enjoy a family feud. And it's one thing if it's on TV. It's a whole other thing if it's in your snow globe. I wrote down in my little, I, I, you all know I like to, to journal on my phone. I, I wrote down something. I, I wanted to keep this. Um, it's, it's, okay. Seven ways, we all love steps, right? Um, seven ways to turn a family conflict into a full-on feud. Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. This will be good. How to turn disagreement into feuds. One, simmer. Maintain a fear of conflict and let all your feelings build up so that when you get together, you're in an explosive frame of mind. Okay, here's the second one. Go quiet. Stay so vague so that the other person can do nothing practical to change the situation. There you go, you'll get, you'll get it going. Third, assume. Assume you know all the facts and you are totally right. Do most of the talking, and if needed, use a Bible verse to clinch your side, okay? Just, that's always added in there, right? Uh, uh, four, complain. With a touch of defiance, announce your willingness to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you, uh, but do no steps and take no steps to initiate conversation and actually solve it. Just talk out loud about how frustrated you are and how nobody. Uh, uh, five, blame. Latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence you can find that shows the other person is to blame and keep a track of records that are wronged against you. Six, win. If the discussion should, alas, become very serious, view the issue as a win-lose struggle, avoid possible solutions, and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. Win. 
And then finally, seven, uh, pass the buck. If you are able, about to get cornered into a solution, indicate you are without power to settle. You need your partner, your spouse, your bank, whatever. Uh, these are by Ron Crabill. Tell it to the church. Seven ways to turn a disagreement into a full-on feud. You know, it was asked in a family feud, what kind of house would you not want to live in? There are answers on the board. The family said play. There are many answers that came up. I wouldn't want to live in a jailhouse. I wouldn't want to live in an outhouse. I wouldn't want to live in, number one answer, haunted house. But if you ask me, especially in the years I've spent in ministry, I think a house none of us would want to live in is this kind of house. Nobody likes that. They often uh, refer to a dysfunctional house as a house where people are being demeaned, neglected, abused, hurt, to the point where some have been so battered down by it, they literally just deal with it. They get their Christmas card shot, if you will, but the root of it is not dealt with. And nobody wants to live in a dysfunctional house of fighting and neglect and division. And there's always someone. They, they, they say, there's this, there's this meme out there, they say, there's crazies in every family. And if you don't know who they are, it's probably you. But there's also peacemakers in every family. Bless your heart, it's usually mom. But how many Christmases are wrecked with whatever and a slamming of a plate, mom seeing someone storm off, or I'm not coming. If that's the way he is, I told you this would happen. I knew this would come up. I'm sick of it. She thinks she's so. And before you know it, the peacemaker who tried to have just one of snow globe is upstairs crying and sitting on a bed. And grief then pours into the Christmas. And we've been talking about in our series, there's stages to that grief. One's denial. This isn't happening. This isn't gonna happen to our family. Another is anger. How could they do this? How could they marry someone who has literally destroyed our family dynamics? How, how could this happen to us? Why us? I'm just so discouraged. And I feel depressed all the time. I'm bargaining. Maybe if I just do this, maybe if we say this, if we do this, and maybe they do this, and then they do this, and then before you know it, just know we are never gonna have a good Christmas we're never having a good life. We're never going to have a good family again. And those streams that come down those eyes have to be comforted by something, and the world lacks for comfort. They're great with their self-help, but they lack for true comfort. We've been reading a little devotional book called Streams in the Desert. It's a collection of devotions written by someone whose spouse was dying in front of them. They wanted to offer them comfort. And so they collected all the comfort they could. October 24th. I made a note since we're spending Christmas in Isaiah. I made a note with sticky notes. Um, how many times Streams in the Desert uses Isaiah? You can see quite a few. A lot. It's as if this Isaiah 
book of Isaiah has comfort in it. Well, you're very nursed in the scriptures because you've been in this series and you know that chapters 40 through 50 some is often referred to as the book of consolation. Comfort my people, scripture says, comfort them. And so as God was comforting Israel, he was also offering some foreshadowing of another comforter who would come. Isaiah would call him Emmanuel. But we see in this little section of Isaiah, Isaiah 41, 15, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp. What does this have to do with trying to be a peacemaker in my family and feeling beaten down and I'm sitting up here in the bedroom and tears are falling down my face because I just can't bring peace? What does this have to do with that? Listen, around the turn of the century, our author writes, a bar of steel was worth $5. Yet when forged into horseshoes, it was worth $10. When made into needles, its value was $350. When used to make small pocket knife blades, its worth was $32,000. And when made into springs for watches, its value increased to a quarter million dollars, $250,000. Obviously, prices at the turn of the century. Listen to this, though. What a pounding the steel bar had to endure to be worth this much. What a pounding the steel bar had to endure to be worth this much. But the more it was shaped, hammered, put through the fire, beaten, pounded, and polished, the greater its value. May we use this analogy as a reminder to be still, silent, and long-suffering For it is those who suffer the most who yield the most. And it is those whose pain that God gets the most out of us. For his glory and for the blessings of others. Oh, give your servant patience to be still and bear your will. Courage to venture wholly on your arm that it will not harm. The wisdom that will never let me stray out of my way. The love that now afflicting yet knows best when I should rest. Our life is very mysterious. In fact, it would be totally unexplainable unless we believe that God was preparing us for events and ministries that lie unseen beyond the veil of the eternal world, where spirits like tempered steel will be required for special service. Ah, the sharper the craftsman's knives, the finer and more beautiful his work. There's a message for those who seek to do the incredibly difficult and often extremely painful job of peacemaking. That yes, you can often get beat up quite a bit, but you're emulating Jesus Christ who came and left his perfect snow globe, came into our mess, we call it the incarnation, and made peace for those who accept Jesus Christ as their savior with God, but he had to inflict and be inflicted and beaten quite a bit for it. And so there's some solace that even when you try to do everything you can and it seems like you find yourself in the middle, that there might just be someone who understands. The devotional streams in the desert was inspired by a verse in Isaiah where God said, I'm doing something new. 
There had been lost. The nation has been under Babylonian captivity. God was calling a king called Cyrus who would lead Israel out, but he was also foreshadowing another would come. And he was comforting and saying, don't dwell on just what I did in the past. When you're going through loss and the snow globe is cracked, embrace what you have now. Don't dwell on the former things. Dwell on what remains. Oh, there's always things that have been lost, but there's things that are still there. Dwell on that. Grasp what I am doing. Yes, you're quick to see maybe where I'm not working, but watch where I am working. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Trust, I'll make a way even in the wilderness. And I'll make streams even in the grief of a snow globe that has been destroyed. Do you have a death of a dream? Do you have a death of what you want in Christmas to look like? Do you even have a death in your family? This series, we're leveraging some comforting things in the book of Isaiah, four specifically songs that speak of a servant that comes, oh, not only to redeem what was going on then, but a foreshadowing of the one who would fulfill this new thing that God was doing. It's a wonder. It's incredible. And it's the wonder of Christmas. If you've got some family conflict or you know of other families, not your own, who do, I pray today we give you some tools that could maybe make this Christmas, uh, maybe not a snow globe, but a God-honoring Christmas. Jesus, as we open your word today, Fill our hearts with a desire to humbly hear it and live it out. Lord, there's no one in this room that doesn't understand conflict. And if we're honest, maybe we're hiding from conflict in our lives. If we're honest, maybe we're part of the reason there's conflict in our lives. If we're honest, there's a lot maybe facing conflict that have no idea on earth how to get around it. And so, Lord, we need your wisdom and we need hope from the pages of Scripture. And we'll look to our servant again today and we'll try to emulate much of his characteristics. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's what we've been doing. And we've been, and we've been, we've been stepping into this a little bit. There's prophecy throughout Isaiah, okay? And so there's always an aspect of the now, which is the servant Israel, specifically in Isaiah. But there's this individual that's spoken of in four songs that are called the servant songs of Isaiah. And it speaks so much of what Jesus went through that we're seeing that this is often foreshadowing of a type of that only being Jesus. In fact, he even fulfills much of it as well as quotes some of these psalm, songs while he preaches. So let, let's just do a quick overview again of our outline, okay? We have the chosen servant of Isaiah 42. We learned he is gentle and lowly. God called him for a reason and, and he's gentle and lowly. And, and many of us, we have characteristics that outweigh one another. Somebody's super loving, but they're kind of harsh in this area. Well, well with God, his attributes are, are, are wonderful. And we learned from the incredible servant that he's meek and measured. Meekness is not weakness, it's power under control. And at any time we saw the servant could call on angels, but he chose to follow through with his father's will. Now this is the third 
servant song today. We're in Isaiah chapter 50, and I'm gonna let us bathe in it, and then we'll, we'll break it down, okay? So here we go. Chapter 50, verse four. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. So again, first person, the servant speaking. That I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear. To hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to a shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. So who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire do equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Wow. Wow. This is an aspect to the servant we have not seen in Isaiah. For we have seen the servant as gentle and lowly, submitting solely to his father's will. We've seen him as meek and measured. He's an arrow that's in a quiver held in the shadow of his father's hand that will only be used when dad says strike. But now we see a servant who's steadfast, who is strong and courageous. In fact, very strong and courageous. You might say, why doesn't Isaiah just come out and call this Jesus? Because he's writing 700 years approximately before he came to earth. This is prophecy that is for the then as well as for the future. And we see in the servant, especially who many of you have the fourth song, many of you have some of it memorized, the suffering servant, but we see in this third one, a strong and courageous servant. Can we unpack it together? Look at this. The Lord God gave me the tongue of those who are taught, that I might know how to sustain with the word who is weary. The tongue of the taught, it means the Lord God gave me, again, the servant is counting on God. He gave me a tongue who is taught that I might know how to sustain a word. This taught means learned. Do you know someone who is incredibly intelligent and incredibly learned? Oftentimes, when they're listening around to opinions, they're sometimes tempered and quiet. You know someone's a little brash in their opinion, yet they're not that studied, and so they're loud with their opinion, and they come across somebody who is studied, and they're just kind of like, and they give out five perspectives that person never thought of, and they're like, oh, geez, you know? It's like the person who's never left Bucks County giving you a worldview, right? This is the way it is in the world today. It's like, you ever left Bucks County? No, but I know how the whole world works. Okay, all right, okay, fair. We can sometimes not be as learned, yet still extremely opinionated. This, this servant is learned and is studied and, and speaks as with the voice of one who is taught. There's an education to this servant. Where did he get it? 
Morning by morning, Isaiah continues, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The idea here is the servant in Isaiah is getting up morning by morning and being taught. We see his divinity and we see his humanity. Learning morning by morning, I see regularity. I see a consistency. And do you see the, you see the priority of waking up and being taught? Ezra is kind of infamous for being one who says in scripture would seek to live out what he was learning before he would speak on it. How many speakers speak about something and then go, I probably should practice what I preach. Ezra would do the opposite. The idea here is the servant is a disciple. In the morning, he learns and he speaks from that. What incredible imagery. Isaiah continues. Speaking, the servant speaking in first person, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. Now, a little cultural, biblical cultural study here would tell you that this open my ear is not necessarily just metaphoric. We often think, oh, yeah, open my ear, made, made me listen. But, but some of you are familiar with the, with the, with the, let's say bond servant, okay? You familiar with the term bond servant? A bond servant was one who would fulfill their service and then they were free to leave. But they loved their master so much, they would return and say, I want to voluntarily serve you. We can see in the New Testament, New Testament writers saying, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. These bond servants, I'm a voluntary servant. I don't have to fulfill a duty. I love working for my master. Well, bond servants, we can see in Exodus, that would come to the doorpost of their master and they would basically put an earring in them, okay? And it would open their ear to kind of symbolize their servanthood. And it was called open their ear. I have opened my ear. The Lord has done that for me. And I have not been rebellious. He's given me a mission and I'm going to complete it. He continues. And it seems like there's been now some conflicts coming into the room, into the whole, the whole song. I gave my back. Look, look, I highlighted. I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I, I gave, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So we're seeing something like there's, there's an aspect where the servant confronts conflict. He's tremendous conflict in his life. I, 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 I gave my back. I didn't not take on the conflict. I, I, I gave my cheeks to having beard, my beard ripped out. And, and I, I didn't hide my face from those who would disgrace or spit. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine a more disgraceful thing than somebody spit in your face. I can't imagine my testimony if someone spit in my face. I mean, can you think of something worse than that? And the servant says, I didn't hide my face. I just took the spit. Wow. But then the servant kind of changes his emotion and we get to see something. And if this servant is Jesus, as we've been implying, we learn something about the moxie of your savior. <laughs> he says this, but the Lord God helps me. Who does he credit? The Lord God 
You see his humanity. You see the hypostatic union being played out right here. Fully God, fully man. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, now, some of you may have heard of the most scale where they, they, they scale the hardness of different material. Flint is seven on the scale. The hardest is a diamond, right? But flint is seven on the scale. And on top of that, flint was what they used to make weapons like the heads of an arrow would be made out of flint. They had purpose. Here the servant says, I, I have set my face like flint. Have you ever heard of a guy having his game face on or a girl having her game face on? They're, they're kind of focused, but we often think of that and we think kind of almost like this, this cocky swag, like I'm gonna get this done and depend upon myself. The servant says, the Lord God helps me. The Lord is with me. And that's where he draws his confidence and he says, I've set my face. And it means literally like I've set my face, I've, I've hard my face to go forward. In the New Testament, we see Jesus throughout the gospels. There came a time in his ministry where he knew it was time to die. And we refer to that time as setting his face to Jerusalem. It's as if he understood there was conflict. He understood there'd be pain. But in order to make peace and to take the wrath of God and appease the wrath of God, he must die on the cross. And he'd set his face to Jerusalem. I have set my face like flint. I love that line. Now listen to this. The servant asks three questions. And there's a little bit like, uh, bring it on. I'm not getting, watch this. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Okay. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? I, I see a little, okay. All right. You ever, ever been around a group and you're like, okay, all right, okay. Do you see that? Like, uh, hey, who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Who will declare me guilty? I'm, I'm getting some courtroom vibes, aren't you? He's using like courtroom's eyes, like there's accusation against him. There's things like, he, it, you, you sense this servant saying, God's with me, so who will contend with me? We, we kind of think through this through this. We're like, yeah, okay, you said that online. I'm standing right here. Say it again. Oh, oh, okay. You get that idea. Well, who will contend with me? I'm standing right here. Who is my adversary? Let him come here. It's like, wow, you're seeing some incredible confidence. There's strength to this language. And on top of that, on top of that, anybody who has any background in like maybe boxing or, or things like that, you understand what it's like for a guy to have a chin who can take a punch. I gave my cheek, I gave my back, I can take a hit. The servant's going, I can take a hit. But on top of that now, the servant says, you can't outlast me. Watch this, watch this. He says this, behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. I was here before you, I'm gonna be here after. I'm here to stay. You sense this moxie here, but it's not based on what we often base it on, our own strength. It's all based on submissiveness to his master and that the Lord is with him. It's gentle and lowly confidence. It's meek and measured confidence. 
But make no mistake, it's strong and courageous. See, I think oftentimes believers see the meek and mild and gentle and lowly savior and go, I understand that. But they think in their heads, so I gotta get like knocked around. I gotta be like, just let everybody walk all over me. But then they see this third servant song and we see a strength and a courageousness that stay, that is steadfast. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You might be in darkness, but trust in God. Listen to his voice. Continue on. He continues and says this. Behold, all you who kindle a fire. Behold, take notice. Don't miss this. All you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Boy, does that make you harken back to the garden of Gethsemane. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. We've been talking about each aspect of the servant songs. We've been noticing the source, the purpose, the approach, and the success. Within this third song, Isaiah presents a steadfast servant. Do you know what the word steadfast means? It's immovable. Have you ever gone skiing and slid into a tree? Have you noticed the tree didn't move? Your bones did, not the tree. Steadfastness. And the steadfast servant, his source of his strength is not in his own, but he's been given the tongue of the taught. The servant can handle himself when people come with difficult questions. The servant can handle himself when he is taken in front of trial and even having people spit in his face. The servant can handle himself when being questioned about things of life. The servant is strong and courageous. Do you know that person? That when there's a debate, they're almost like, bring it on. The servant has that, but it's not wrapped up in self. It's wrapped up in obedience to the master's will. The purpose of his work. I gave my back, my cheek, and my face. The steadfast servant is strong and courageous and can take a punch and take a hit and keep going. I see though, the approach is almost militant and that I will accomplish what I've set out to do because what I've been called to do is bigger than the moment I'm in. I am serving a larger cause and therefore I will take the abuse, I will take the conflict that comes my way because I believe and have set my hope on what's to come. Oh, but we see in all the songs the success of the servant's work. It's the Lord who helps him. Do we ever see, do we ever see our Lord and Savior in situations where he's called to be steadfast amongst conflict and attack? Oh, we certainly do. If you're familiar with Matthew 22, there's three, three kind of attacks on Jesus to kind of make him look stupid in the public square. 
Their goal is to trap him, to gather around and come up with some questions that even the Pharisees and Sadducees, the most learned men, these aren't commoners who are uneducated people. I mean, these guys go to the best universities. These guys are the elite of the elite. These guys speak with a belittling tone and they're annoyed that you could ever question them. These guys have arguments with themselves. Did you know that? Did you know the Sadducees and Pharisees, they would argue within themselves about things. And so they would have these higher level discussions, if you will, and they would start to bring them to Jesus. And we never see it more than in Matthew 22. It's as if they came up with a scheme. We're gonna ask them about taxes. And they came up to Jesus. And and of course, he's in a spot where many people are around. and, And they asked a question that many of the Jews struggle with for oftentimes the Romans would even have Jews becoming tax collectors, see Matthew, and taking from their own people and taxing them just very difficultly and hard. And they're like, how can we let them do this to us? And, and they're using these taxes for wrong gain. We need to get out of this. We can't be a part of this. Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll ask Jesus what he says. And if he says, you shouldn't pay your taxes, we're gonna get him as an insurrectionist. And if he says, you should pay your taxes, well, then all the people are gonna turn on him because they're like, how do you pay your taxes? So here we go, here we go. Uh, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus? And Jesus walked along and goes, oh no, oh no, I knew they were gonna ask me a question I couldn't handle. No, not at all. And I love these stories because I see my savior at work and they go, should we pay taxes to Caesar? (laughs) Jesus walks up and goes, what you got there? I want to tell you something. If you're ever in a debate with somebody and you think you got them cornered and then they say like, uh, can I see that pen you're holding? And they go for an analogy. You're done. You're done. (laughs) Can I see that coin? Yeah. Takes it. Whose face is on it? Caesar's. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and God's what is God's. And in that answer, he submits the authority before him, but he also hammers down the fact that there's no authority over God's. There's your coin back. And the Sadducees, so the Pharisees come up. We got one, we got one, we got one. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. Excuse me, so the Sadducees came up. I got excited and jumped to the, my third one. So the Sadducees come up and they go, okay, okay, we got an illustration for you. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they'll talk about something that could never happen. There was this woman and she had a husband, okay, and he died. And so she married again, and she had a second husband, and he died. And she married again, and she had a third husband, and he died. I'm sitting here raising my hand right there. All right. Either this lady's doing something, or what, you know, what is going on here? She needs to stop marrying people, okay? They go to seven, seven husbands, and they all died. Crowd's like, oh, my word, that's terrible. And they go, all right. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? (laughs) She can't be everybody's wife. I mean. (laughs) Now, if you know something about the Sadducees, they only really believed in the first part of the Pentateuch or the first five books. So they only really mean So Jesus pulls out, you don't know God because I'm the God of Moses. Huh? And you don't know scripture because there will be no marriage in the resurrection. No. And he just walks on. And then there's always that one guy, and he was a Pharisee. 
And he sees that Jesus is just stumping the Sadducees. He's stumping the questions on Caesar. And he comes up, and I bet he was something, right? Because he comes up by himself. It says a lawyer approached him. Walks up to him and he says, which is the greatest commandment? Now, that might not be hard for you because you've studied the New Testament. You go, already, Jesus already told me. Yeah, but they didn't know at that time, so there's arguments. And they had over some 600 some rules for the people, okay? They go, which one is the greatest commandment? There's a massive argument. The Sadducees probably like, let me hear this. Pharisees, let me hear this. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The whole thing of commandments are on that. He summarizes the entire law on to love your God. And it was silence. We see in Jesus a chosen servant that's gentle and lowly. We see an incredible servant that's meek and measured. And we see a steadfast servant that's strong and courageous. And when conflict comes around him, he doesn't sway to one attribute or the other. We see it all come out of him. Compare that to what we learned about in the first week of our series, how Isaiah would have these types. One, many believe, is of Lucifer. And he mentions the five I wills when he speaks of the king of Babylon, that Israel at the time was underneath his leadership. Do you remember the five wills? And do you remember which way they were going? Let's remind ourselves. In Isaiah 14, he says, I will be known. I will ascend above the stars, you said in your heart. You said in your heart, I will be successful. I will set my throne on high. I will be respected in this family. You sit on the mount of assembly. He said, I will be powerful. I'll rise above the clouds. I will be praised like the most high. And what's at the top of that? but you were brought down low. Pride cometh before the fall. We've been looking at another servant of scripture in the New Testament. We've been in the book of Philippians in chapter two. Oh, and it's a very different direction. Jesus, who we are to have the same mind of, said, I'll surrender, and did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He said, I will sacrifice, but emptied himself. I will serve, taking the form of a bondservant. I will submit, becoming obedient. I oh, will suffer, even death on the cross. But there's an incredible return, not on investment, ROI, there's an incredible return on servanthood. For at the bottom of that, therefore God highly exalted him. Pride goeth before the fall. Humility cometh before the rise. This Christmas, the chosen servant has emulated to us to be gentle and lowly. There's a return on serving your loved ones. And it will take some time submitting, sacrificing, maybe even suffering. But there's an incredible return we see in scripture on serving. 
for God exalts that. With the incredible servant who was meek and measured, didn't necessarily say what it needs to be said or yell or, or anything like that, but we see there's an incredible return on meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. Wear this Christmas when you're tempted. You instead exercise meekness and measuredness. But today we saw a steadfast servant who's strong and courageous, who will even sometimes walk into conflict so that peace can be found. And make no mistake, there's a return on courage. And I heard this quote and I loved it. Courage is not having the strength. Courage is going on despite no strength. And maybe that's how you feel. You feel completely powerless to end the conflict that's in your family. You've prayed, you've asked God, you've sought this, but you feel completely powerless. And there's this new dynamic in your family and you don't like it. And it's bringing division, it's bringing conflict and you can complain about it, you can simmer about it, you can yell about it, you can point out the record of wrongs, or you could embrace the new. You could move forward and embrace the new, not dwelling on things of old, but dwell on what remains. Next slide. Grasp what God is doing in your family Versus thinking about, what I don't see him doing this. What is he doing? Trust him despite the uncertainty of what it will be like and rest even while in the difficulty. Because there's an incredible return on walking towards the conflict that maybe God has tapped on your shoulder to deal with. But fear is always gonna be there, fighting back. Yet throughout scripture, we see so many steadfast servants we've been emulated Oh, there was Abraham. Fear said, God will take. But faith says, God will provide. And God provided a sacrifice. Oh, there was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Fear says, what if this happens? What if we stand, what if we do, what if this happens? Where faith says, even if it happens. Where in your life right now, like I'm afraid if this happens and that's gonna happen. Well, even if that happens, we're gonna do what God's calling us to do here. Nehemiah. Fear says, you won't finish, you can't finish. Faith says, I can't stop, I'm not coming off this wall. And love sometimes hurts, and love sometimes painful, but I'm gonna keep going. Oh, fear, fear says, why now, why us? Why has it gotta be this time of year? Why at this situation where faith says, for such a time as this, that's why I've been called to do this and walks into the king's room. Oh, fear loves to say, they're coming, they're coming for us, they're coming for us, where faith says, we're coming for them. We're coming for them. David, you come at me with a sword and a shield? I come at you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth. Bring it on. Not his own strength, not an arrogant bone in that comet. 
I understand who is with me. And that's how I enter conflict. Oh, I have set my face like flint. Where is God calling you to enter into possibly some conflict the way Jesus would? Gentle and lowly, meek and measured, but strong and courageous. You're gonna need to be steadfast. You're gonna have to say, I might suffer a little bit, I might get beat up, but I want to see peace. They say there's three characters in peacemaking. There are peace breakers who break the peace all the time. Whatever, I don't care. He won't care what he says. I didn't even ask him to be here. He hasn't even talked to us all year. Why would we talk to him now? There's peace fakers. Let's just act like nothing's going on, okay? Put the food on, okay? Yeah, but so is, ah, we're not gonna do that. Okay, just, we're just gonna fake like we like each other. So we get my snow globe for 45 minutes. Then there's peacemakers. In order to be a peacemaker, there has to be courage. I wanna leave you today with six application points for you in case you're going through some conflict that I have learned in my own life that I'm always trying to get better at because I don't like conflict just like you don't. But in leadership, you're gonna have conflict and in families, you're gonna have conflict. There is no pain like family pain. And maybe some of these will come to your mind this Christmas and prevent things that could get worse or never be repaired. One, it's the olive branch dynamic. Scripture says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Is it your goal to live peaceably? Have you, as far as it goes by you, have you said the things that can bring peace? When you apply the olive branch principle, it allows you to ask three questions. One, have I forgiven them? Being, harboring unforgiveness is killing you. And that is the first thing that needs to be dealt with. Have I forgiven them? Second, have I been doing everything I can? Are there things that the conflict is here because of what I'm doing? And third, have I been praying for them? We say, oh, I've been praying for them. Have you been praying for blessing for them? What could you do to send an olive branch? Hey, we wanted to invite you. Hey, just so you know. Hey, here's a little card. Hey, I wanted to stop by and say hello. Where's the olive branch? Because you don't, you don't understand, it's too explosive. I can't even do that. Well, for explosive situations, can I offer the 24-hour principle? Some things need 24 hours. I know the scripture says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, but that is speaking just as much to urgency as it is watching sunsets and making the situation get healed. There are things we all know that will not get fixed because it didn't take one day to get to where you're at and it's not gonna take one day to tighten it up. But could I offer the 24 hour principle? Scripture says, James 1.19, know this, brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We are so good in our society of sending nastiness through social media, emails, and things like that. We're so good at it. In person, we're very different people. And sometimes you will get something that really rubs you the wrong way, and you're really fired up. Could I offer 
Give it 24 hours. I have a journal that sometimes I write back my response and I never send it, but it's healing to get it out. We do get hurt by things. I had a person of wisdom say, Chris, you don't text negative news. You text positive news. If you gotta do something negative, do it to their face. Speak to them. We often will hurt one another and we'll do something. And then that person sits around for 24 hours applying all the passive aggressiveness to your text that you never even said. Call them with negative, text them with the positive. I've tried to apply that, it's not always easy. But a 24 hour dynamic, it gives you time to think, am I being too sensitive? They say prideful people get their feelings hurt all the time. Why? They're only thinking about themselves. Am I being too hasty? Am I about to make it worse? I know of families where mother-in-law said something before they were married that is still wrecking Christmases to this day. I know families where son has said something to dad that is still attention at the Christmas time. Am I about to make it worse? Our staff likes to say, are you really gonna set up a second meeting because of what you did? Try not to move it down the road. Black drape principle, what's this? Above all, be fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. One of the jokes we have at church is we have a lot of black drape. What are they doing? Covering up the parts we don't want you all to see. Love covers. It carries the idea of forgiving. But what's also cool is we stretch the black drape out over to cover a bunch of stuff. And that's what fervent means. It means to be stretched you possibly have a loved one that stretches you. Scripture says, let them stretch you. Apply the black drape principle. Yeah, they're so difficult for me. Okay, well then you get to grow. No, I want it to not happen. No, you get to grow. Above all, keep fervent in your love. The black drape principle offers us a chance to ask questions. Could I just take this blow? That did hurt, but can I take it? Could I be stretched here? Could, could I have misunderstood them and apply some grace? Could I just let this stretch me? The mirror principle. Scripture says in Matthew 7, 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Aren't we so good at pointing out the faults of our family members? Is it possible we should go check out the mirror? We bring a dynamic too. And this mirror principle reminds me when I'm facing conflict for Chris, before you go into this conflict, have you asked yourself about the log in your own eye? Can I admit my role in this? Can I grow from this? Respect is a two-way street. I remember being a youth pastor, having parents sometimes bring a teenager up to me, standing right next to them going, can you fix this? I'm like, oh man, I'm sorry, bud. Respect's a two-way street. The elephant in the room. Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them with the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. I often call this one the patriarch. As a patriarch of a family, you do have a responsibility that sometimes you're letting go and there's an elephant in the room and the Holy Spirit's been tapping on you going, you know you're the one who's supposed to be dealing with this and your peace faking, and the elephants in the room, and oftentimes the weaker ones are going, are you gonna do something about this? Because we're all getting hurt because of this. And the Holy Spirit's going, this is your responsibility, and pride's not gonna get there. God is opposed to the pride, but gives grace to the humble. 
Whenever I'm going into conflict, I say, Lord, make me be the one that's humble because I know you're opposed to the proud. Am I ignoring my role with the elephant dynamic? Am I avoiding my responsibility? Am I justifying my ignorance of this because I'm just afraid? Strong and courageous. And then finally, imagine what it's like to be in the other shoes. Do unto others how you would have them do to you. How would I want to be approached if I were the one in the wrong? That's a question the other shoes asks. How would I want to be approached? In front of the whole family at the dining table? No, in private. The second question is this. How how would I want to be talked to? And where would I want to be talked to? And how would I want to feel after the conversation's over? When I think through those things, it helps me apply grace and conflict. And it takes strength and courage because nobody wants to be the one to try to fix some of the snow globe. Brothers and sisters, the question we've been asking is this steadfast servant, Jesus, is he the one that's strong, courageous? In Matthew, he went before the Jews They locked him up and scripture says they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him and said, prophesy, who hit you? He then went before Pilate and after grueling him, they said, they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe. The wonder of Christmas is that Jesus left his snow globe to go get punched in the stinking face for me? Are you kidding me? To get hit on the head for me? For me? You did that for me? You set your face like Flint to go get whipped and beaten and have your beard pulled out for me? I'm in. You have my life. I pray you give his, your life to him as well. Heavenly Fathers, we close today. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And my Savior took this beating and mockery when he was in a perfect snow globe. And he came into this mess and was ridiculed and hurt. But he was so strong and courageous, he walked into the conflict, yet remained gentle and lowly and meek and measured. But strong and courageous, he held out his arms as they drove spikes through them for me. That's Christmas. That's what Jesus did. And the servant prophesied in Isaiah, the Lord's servant spoken of in Philippians. He did it all so that one day for those who call on his name, turn from their sin and accept Jesus Christ as Lord, will one day experience the snow globe of heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for Christmas. Thank you for being so strong and courageous that you would allow that to happen to you so that we 
could celebrate the season. Lord, we'll give gifts, we'll give packages, but may we never forget what you did for us. Amen.